Well, thank you for joining us here at Every Nation Church, Las Vegas. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm the associate pastor. I'm not usually sitting down when I preach a message. Um, some of you are wiping your eyes and you know why I'm sitting down. Uh, others of you have no idea, but I will tell you. Just wait a few minutes. We're building up toward a climax so we can see the glory of God together. It doesn't matter what happened to me this past week. God will get his glory. Let me be clear. If something else had happened to me this week, God would get his glory. He just chose to take it with me on stage. I'm thankful for that. So today we're going to continue our series on the Holy Spirit. We've been talking about the third person in the Trinity and how the Holy Spirit is our paraclete, our helper, our advocate, our counselor. The reason why the Bible uses all these different names to describe the Holy Spirit of God is because not a single phrase could encapsulate everything the Holy Spirit was sent to be for us. Our helper, our counselor, when we go through incredibly weird things that cause trauma, you have to drive past the spot every day. He's our advocate. He's our spiritual airbag. But that's not what we're talking about today. What we're talking about is the fact that our beliefs can determine our behavior. How many of you believe that's true? Our beliefs can determine our behavior. Pretty basic, right? If I believe that I need to be hydrated to live a normal life, I'm going to drink water. And if I believe it's stronger, I'm going to get a bigger water bottle. And if I really believe it, I'm going to get a second big water bottle that I will promptly forget at DJ's workplace when we're talking about ways to serve the community. But we know where it is, and that's the main thing. Uh, in February of 2020, something happened that changed my beliefs and subsequently changed my behavior. Now, whenever we talk about early 2020, I'm just getting my phone. I'm going to sit back down. I don't know how long I could stand. I haven't really tried. Um, I think I can, but let's, let's just play it safe today, right? Um, February 2020, we are at a conference in Los Angeles. Zeke, you were there, right? So we're here at this conference. It's an Every Nation Campus Conference. And I come in with a very firm and clear belief about public restrooms. And I am convinced that the best thing for a good Christian to do is to use the air dryer, the blow dryer, to dry our hands after we wash them. Now, the reason I believe this is because the first command that God gave Adam and Eve was take care of the planet. So Captain Planet, the cartoon show, was inspired by God. And the first thing he did was say to Adam, tend this garden, take dominion, over the animals and the plants and the fish and the sea. And I'm helping preserve and carry out this first command of God by not killing trees. Why would I use this cheap, recycled brown napkin when I can use air? So much more sustainable. Be in awe of how good of a person I am. Firm belief. And then we go to this campus conference in Los Angeles and somebody tells us that there have been multiple studies done. And that in actuality, these blow dryers are like bacterial bombs. Would you be surprised if I told you that there's bacteria in the air of a bathroom? Well, what happens with these air dryers is that they circulate the bacteria everywhere. 
Another thing that's not that surprising is people don't always wash their hands that well. In fact, if you don't use any soap or if you don't wash your hands well, you come to this blow dryer with your bacteria in a swimming pool. That's all it is. And then we put our hands in the air dryer and then it blows that bacteria on our hands all over the place. So one study I remember hearing about was they took a Petri dish and they put it in a bathroom for two minutes in a bathroom that had no air dryer. And this Petri dish had one colony of bacteria in it. And then they took a Petri dish and put it in a bathroom with an air dryer. And after two minutes, that Petri dish had 245 to 250 colonies of bacteria. It's not that good for us, is it? Suddenly, I find myself adjusting my beliefs. And because I adjusted my beliefs, I have since adjusted my behavior. And I don't use those air dryers anymore. Napkins all the way. Napkins or shirts or anything else. That thing is a volcanic plume of virus. Stay away from it. I stay away from it. Beliefs determine behavior. Now, we believe things about God. And sometimes we allow our beliefs about God, whether we realize it or not, to impact the way we behave in our relationship with God. And today, I want to address one of those beliefs so that we behave in a way that I think God wants us to. So the title of this sermon today is, If God is Bigger. Dot, dot, dot. Would you pray with me? God, thank you. Where would I be without your love? You, God, who shaped the universe and spoke into existence, you hold me in your hands. Thank you. And thank you for my spiritual family. Lord, I pray that you would pour out your spirit on us this morning, that you would answer prayer, that you would move in mighty ways and leave us changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, this morning, our passage is going to come from the book of 1 Kings. First uh, Kings actually started out as one book. First and Second Kings, it was split in half, but it was one book, the book of Kings, and we're going to use this book to look at a period of Israel's history that reflects pretty strongly, in a lot of ways, uh, to where we find ourselves today. Because where we find ourselves right now is that there are big challenges all around us. <clears throat> and as we read the book of Kings, we find that the kingdom of Israel has split into two different kingdoms. Uh, the southern kingdom, they took the name Judah, and they followed the family line of King David and King Solomon, uh, their first king was King Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. And, you know, they're, they're hot and cold. They've got some good kings and they've got some bad ones. But we're not going to talk about them today. We're going to follow the other guys, the northern kingdom. They took the name Israel. They kept that name. And the first king of the kingdom of Israel was a man named Jeroboam. Now, Jeroboam was appointed by God, but then he turned from God. And things took a turn for the worse. So instead of following the traditional family line of succession, it became a matter of family succession and political assassination in northern Israel. And this is going and going and going, and the people of Israel keep going further and further and further from God to where we zoom in and zero in on this particular moment in the history of the people of Israel, and we see them at their worst. Under their most evil king, a man by the name of Ahab, so read with me in 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 30 to 33. Ahab 
son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. Now, if you're familiar with church or you've been around for a while, any sort of background in faith, you probably know that Israel was supposed to be God's chosen people. God called Abraham out of Babylon to go to this promised land, foretelling that he would have children that outnumber the stars, outnumbers the sand. And then these people, they get stuck in Egypt, and God rescues them and redeems them from Egypt with mighty signs and wonders, <clears throat> sending plagues upon the Egyptians. God saved Israel from that. And then God stayed with Israel in spite of all their disobedience and all of their issues in the wilderness for 40 years, wandering in circles with them, waiting for them to get it together. And when they finally get it together, God goes before the people into the promised land and he breaks down the city of Jericho and all they had to do was walk around in circles and cry out on the sixth day. Seventh day? I didn't study that part. <clears throat> somebody, somebody knows. Anyway, God is with them. This is God's people. This is God's special possession. And Ahab comes along, replaces God with Baal. They bailed on God. Didn't think about that until now. They bailed on God, and they essentially institutionalized Baal worship. God had redeemed this people. God set them apart. God made them different from every other nation surrounding them. Through the covenant, through circumcision, through the Sabbath, in every way, showing these people are my people. They are different. They are special. They're holy and consecrated for a purpose. And Ahab says, this Baal guy sounds pretty cool. God of skies and sun and storm and rain controls the crops without controlling me. I'm going to worship Baal. So King Ahab essentially kicks God out. He marries a woman named Jezebel who might be worse than him. And Jezebel is more Ursula than Ariel. She's a Disney villain, not a Disney princess. She's got the song with the green lights in the background. Whenever a Disney villain sings and they, there's green lights, that's the bad guy. Jezebel's a bad guy. And by the way, her dad's name is Ethbaal, which literally means with Baal. So King Ahab, as king, worships Baal and builds a temple for this god who's done nothing for them in the capital city of Samaria. And he's bringing Israel further and further from God. God's people have never been further from him. Now, if we were to talk about this in a modern context, a lot of people would say, well, what's the problem with that? What's true for you might not be true for them. Different strokes for different folks. Truth is relative, right? Now, the problem is that different strokes lead in different directions. And if we do anything other than follow God, our strokes will lead us in a suboptimal direction. And in particular, following Baal led them to the worst possible direction. And we can see this in the same passage, 1 Kings 16. This is the end of the passage. Verse 34, in Ahab's time, 
Hiel of Bethel, rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram. And he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub. The people of Israel are rebuilding Jericho, the very city that God tore down for them. This city and its fallen walls were a symbol of their freedom. It was a symbol of their victory. It was a symbol of their deliverance. So with them rebuilding it, what is that a symbol of? Captivity. Defeat. Wandering from God. Distance from God. Rejecting God. They rejected what God did for them, so they rejected God. And as, as if this weren't bad enough, the author of the King's books tells us that this builder, Hiel of Bethel, built the foundation at the cost of his firstborn son. What that means is he ritualistically sacrificed his child when the foundation of Jericho was built. <clears throat> now, there are a lot of buildings in Vegas. There are a lot of buildings that we've seen throughout our lives. I would imagine that virtually none of them require the sacrifice of a child to build it. Sacrifice this kid. Build a building. And at the end of the construction, when they added a gate, for good measure, he just sacrificed another one. It's evil. Ahab and Jezebel had led the people away from God. And this is the cultural climate that they find themselves in. But there's good news in all of this. Because God is bigger than the cultural climate. <clears throat> God was bigger than their cultural climate. And he's bigger than ours. So at this moment, God is about to call someone to rise up in the face of their cultural climate. And he is the main character of our sermon today. So 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1 says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. This is where we get introduced to Elijah the prophet in the Bible. <clears throat> and if you've been reading the Bible, you know that Elijah is one of the most foremost, prophet, foremost prophets of the Old Testament. Water break. Elijah comes out of nowhere. Now, Elijah is from Tishbe and Gilead. We don't know exactly where Tishbe is today, but Gilead was on the eastern side of the Jordan River as the people of Israel started to come in to the promised land. Some of them stayed back and said, <clears throat> hey, this land's pretty nice too. <clears throat> Can we just stay here and settle here? So they stayed living on the edge of the land. So that's what Tishbe and Tishbite means. Tishbe means of the settlers. So Elijah is a man who settled, or his family would have settled, on the outskirts of Israel. This is a guy from a rural area. He's from the boonies. And this prophet from the boonies comes to the capital to challenge a child-sacrificing king. It's pretty daring, if you ask me. It takes a lot of nerve. And the reason why he did that was because he served God. He wasn't thinking about some personal cause. He was thinking about a personal call from God himself. And he stood up against the king in such a way as to directly defy the cultural climate in the name of the Lord. Baal was the god of the skies. 
He was the God of the sun and the storms, of the rain. So for Elijah to come out and say, it's not going to rain, it's a direct challenge to Baal. And he only had that kind of confidence because he knew that God was behind him. The challenges were big. The temple to Baal, I'm sure it was big. The fact that the king and queen are worshiping Baal, and she's from a family that worships Baal, that's big. God is bigger. God is bigger than the cultural climate. You know, God's people are experiencing challenges in the world today. And our cultural climate is increasingly moving away from God. I think it was in 2020 there was a study done where 47 or so percent of Americans said that they belong to a personal church. You think, that's, that's pretty good. It's pretty good, right? 47 percent. In 1999, 20 years previous to that, it was uh, 70%. Down 20%, 20 years. Remember, a lot of people who say they belong to church, well, they don't come that often. There are a lot of reasons for this. Part of the reasons is that the marginal middle, people who identify themselves in whatever way that is most convenient in the culture, they decided to stray away from the church because that's no longer as culturally advantageous and identify themselves away from God. But you know what? God's people has, we've faced steeper odds before. The church was birthed in steeper odds. There are Christians around the world worshiping God very differently from us, where they don't get a microphone, they don't get a Bible on the screen, they don't get speakers on a stage. They get people who memorize parts of the Bible in a house church because it's all they can do. Or worshiping God. Or risking their lives. And guess what? That's where the church thrives. Because that's when we rely on God the most. God is bigger than our cultural climate. And if it takes making things a little more difficult here in America for God to move, so be it. Let's let our God prove he's bigger. Elijah stands up against the evil king Ahab, and here's what happens next. 1 Kings 17, 2 through 4, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. It's big. It's big for two reasons. First, Ahab and Jezebel are looking for him. Elijah has become public enemy number one. Reason number two, they are now in a drought. Now, it's easy for us to look, overlook the significance of drought because we are in a drought. Lake Mead is disappearing, and our lifestyle has not changed. But they were an agrarian society that needed rain and the brooks and the streams to drink. They didn't have indoor plumbing. They didn't have grocery stores. They needed rain for their crops and their food and their animals. So to shut off the rain is to shut off everything. Drought was a big deal, and essentially for them, it's a famine, and it's one of the biggest possible economic downturns they could have experienced. But God is also bigger than economic downturn and personal need. So Elijah is living here by this brook, and I'm not sure how long it is. He's receiving food from ravens, and he's drinking brook, and then one from the brook, and then eventually the brook dries up. And the ravens come one more time. And Elijah said, are you going to bring me food tomorrow? And the raven says, never more. 
Edgar Allan Poe reference worked. So God speaks to Elijah again, verses 8 and 9. We're still in 1 Kings 17. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So now in the middle of this drought, God sends Elijah to one of the most marginalized, at-risk, impoverished people possible in the society, a widow. And the reason why she's so impoverished is because in those days, women didn't work. They lived under the care of their fathers, and then they got married and left the care of their fathers and lived under the care of their husbands. So when a widow lost their husband, they lost their income. And they either had to beg or try to manage the family business, or unfortunately, some of them had to sell themselves to provide food for themselves and their family. And God says, go find a widow. Side note, a Gentile widow. That woman is going to supply for you. Some big needs here. Elijah is in need. And the widow was in bigger need because Elijah finds the widow and he says to her, Thus saith the Lord, widow, bringeth unto me thou some bread, thine finest grain. And the widow says to him, Well, I'd love to, but I can't. Because you see, I do have a little flour and I do have a little oil and I can bake a little bread, but it's all I have left. So I'm going to bake it And then my son and I are going to eat a last meal together. Then we're going to starve to death. They had needs. Big needs. All of them did. They're in a big, bad situation with the economy, with the drought, with the famine. And yet God is bigger than all of that. God's bigger than it all. Let's look at what God did. Verses 13 through 15, Elijah said to her, don't be afraid, go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. God was bigger than their personal needs. He's bigger. And I don't know what went through this woman's mind, but I imagine she said, I've got nothing left to lose. I'm desperate. Why not try God? You know, almost everyone agrees, both experts and regular people like us, We're headed into recession, they say, if we're not there already. And with recession comes needs. We all have needs, and some of us have bigger needs than others. But God is bigger than our needs. God is bigger than economic recession. God is bigger than our debt. God is bigger than our lack. He's bigger. My God shall supply for all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He's bigger. My God is bigger. He shows it time and time again. He's bigger than the cultural climate. He's bigger than the recession. And he's bigger than death. The God of Elijah is bigger than death. 
my God is bigger than death. First Kings. After this moment where Elijah now lives with a widow whose oil never runs dry and never runs out of flour, they're eating together. Eventually, her son gets sick and he dies. She's angry at Elijah and she's angry at God. She's blaming herself and she says, did you come to remind me of my sin? And in the face of this, this is how Elijah responds, verse 19. Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord my God. Let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. He lived. My God is bigger than death. He proved it in the Old Testament through Elijah. Then he proved it once and for all in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. And that's enough. But he's the God of more than enough. Now here's what the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is alive because Jesus is alive. Our hope's alive because Jesus is alive. And even if it didn't turn out the way I wanted, your hope would be alive because Jesus is alive. My, one of my favorite hymns that I've known for most of my life professes so powerfully, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth living just because he lives. And God's bigger than all of that. He's bigger than the culture. He's bigger than the economy. He's bigger than death. And if he's bigger than death, he's bigger than everything else we're facing in our lives right now. And he's bigger, he's bigger, he's bigger. And God wants to do bigger things. So let's jump now from the book of First Kings to the book of James. And you'll see why we're making this massive jump in just a moment. Um, heavy, heavy, everybody's crying. Anybody want some fun Bible trivia? Uh, Greek. Does anybody know James's name in Greek? It's Jacobus. James's name is Jacobus. Jacob. Why on earth would we translate poor Jacob's name as James? Which king commissioned the translation of the Bible into English again? King James. So when you get to heaven and we have a meet and greet with all the authors of the Bible, let's at least sound like <laughs> we care about the guy's name, like, hey, Jacob, sorry about that, bro. 
book of Jacob, but book of James, so we know where we are. This is what the book of James says in verses 5, 13 through 16. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. God is pretty emphatic here about his wanting us to pray. Why on earth does God want us to pray when he knows what we need? Same reason I want my girls to ask me for something. Because I want to answer. Because it's in my heart as a father to give them what they want and what they need. Sometimes what they want is not the best thing for them, so I say no. Or I distract them with something else. God wants us to come to him because in coming to him, we build relationships. And he gives us the opportunity to have answered prayer. God wants us to pray. And he wants to answer us when we pray. Now, we're in a church, in case you didn't know. A lot of us pray. Most of us pray. But I think a lot of us pray cautious prayers. We pray cautious prayers because we're afraid of being disappointed. We're afraid of being disappointed because the issues surrounding us, surrounding us, what is surrounding us? Oh, forgive me, I was in a car accident in my head, so you know. The issues surrounding us are big. Our needs are big. They're big. They're challenging. They're scary. They're frustrating. They make us sad. They make us cry. They make us upset. They're big. God is bigger. God is bigger than the issues around us. God is bigger than our fears. God is bigger than our worries. God is bigger than our lack. God is bigger than our sickness. God is bigger. God is bigger. God is bigger. And if God is bigger, then we will pray bigger prayers. If God is bigger, if we believe that God is bigger, then we will pray bigger prayers. Our beliefs will impact our behavior and change it forever. And we might think to ourselves, well, I'm not Elijah. I can't make the rain stop. And that's good. And that's why we skipped from the book of 1 Kings all the way to James, Jacob, James. Because here's what James, Jacob, James, tells us in the very next verse. James 5.17. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Elijah was a human being just like us. The reason why God fed him with ravens and let him drink from a stream was because he needed to eat food and drink water. And if you read on in the story, 
you'll find that he experienced excitement like a human being. Then he experienced fear and sadness and maybe even depression like a human being. Flesh and bones, just like us. If Elijah was in a car accident, he'd be injured too. It's bruises. Something separated him. He prayed. He prayed. He prayed. Hebrew is really interesting in this. Uh, uh, it's Greek in this scripture because it's repeating the same word. He prayed prayers. It's a superlative. It's saying what he did was the best of the best. It's like this. Say, he, Michael Jordan, he was a basketball player. And Tiger Woods, he was a golfer. Elijah, that guy could pray. And I think one reason why he prayed was because he was desperate. He was desperate. He knew he couldn't stop the rain. He knew he couldn't get birds to come and feed him. He couldn't make the jar multiply itself until they didn't need it anymore. He couldn't raise a little boy from the dead. I couldn't save my life. There's nothing I could do. But we knew that God was bigger. And out of this desperation came a prayer. A big prayer. It takes a big God. Let's allow the big issues and challenges around us to make us desperate enough to pray a big prayer to God. A couple final thoughts. James chapter 4 is the scripture you might have heard. Um, I'll just read it. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. You may spend what you get on your pleasures. We need to ask God and we need to ask with the right motives. It's like a road. We're on this road. On one side is a ditch, and that's not asking because we're afraid. On the other side is a ditch of asking with the wrong motives. Selfishly living for our pleasure or glory, etc., whatever it might be. But powerful prayer, desperate prayer, big prayer exists in the middle of these things. And God's calling us to walk on this road of big prayer. How do we know we're doing it? Just keep trying. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened unto you. For whoever asks receives. Whoever seeks will find. And whoever knocks it will be opened unto them. And only after we've asked and sought God and found out that maybe we were asking for the wrong reasons. So we avoided this ditch of not asking. We just asked and asked and asked again. And we didn't see God answer, then we can be spiritual about it and say, well, God is calling me to live with this thorn in the flesh because his grace is sufficient for me and his power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that the power of God can rest on me. But up until we reach that point and God just says no or not yet, we just keep praying big prayers. 
And if we keep walking on this road of big prayer, we'll get one of two things. We will either get answered prayer or we will get the power of God. And I'm fine with either of these two things. So in the face of everything around us, all the big things, they're big things. No one's discrediting this. Let's just remember that our God is bigger. And if we believe that God is bigger, then we will pray big prayers. Would you all stand with me? We're going to switch it up a little bit this morning. We've got some time left in service. I'd like us to take a moment and put our problems in perspective in relation to the size of our God. And I'd like, to, like us to worship God together one more time. And after that, I'd like to create an opportunity for us to come before God at the altar and pray some big prayers. First, Lord, we thank you. Where would I be without you? now, God, I ask that you would meet us. Meet us wherever we are. Remind us of all the great things you've done and how big you are and how big you want to be. Stir us up to faith. Free us from the callousness of cynicism and doubt and complacency and help us to live lives of faith. For the kingdom of God does not exist in mere talk, but in power. Help us to thank you from the depths of our being because of who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.